Support comes from Clipper Vacations with savings on a Victoria, B.C. getaway during the spring sale. 20% off a Clipper Fast Ferry round trip plus two nights hotel and kids travel at half price. Details and booking at clippervacations.com slash NPR. Hey you, welcome to Friday. My name is Bill Radke, and I'm very happy to say hello to my panel right now, political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Hiya, Joni. Hi there. Hi there. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis. Hi, Mike. Good to see you, Bill. And you and KUOW politics reporter David Hyde. Hey, David. Hey, Bill. And I mean good to see you in that we are streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook, so you can you can join us visually uh, you just go on and search KUOW Public Radio. And, it, you know, if you miss any part of the show, just want to remind you, it's going to be online at KUOW.org. It's going to be in our Week in Review podcast, so we'll get you when we can. Let's begin with our first topic from this week. Your primary election ballot is now in your hot little hands, or it's on the way. They went out in the mail this week in King, Pierce, and Homish, Thurston counties. August 2nd is the election Deadline, not really election day, since we vote by mail here. You can mail yours in anytime, and let's let's get you informed here. Happily, KOW's politics reporter is on the call. David Hyde, which primary campaign to you is most important or most intriguing? It's so hard to pick, really. But I love the battle for the eighth congressional district, uh, just because this is one of only about a dozen races in the entire country where voters are likely to decide which party gets to control Congress next year. Very probably the only district like that here in Washington state. And I think, you know, voters in the eighth aren't really terribly aware of this power. I was just out in Leavenworth talking to folks and they're just kind of going about their lives, um, selling lederhosen, eating strudel, (laughs) uh, playing the Alphorn in the middle of town, not realizing that they are really at the center of this political firestorm this year. And David, you say that they are at the center of it because unlike most congressional districts, it's actually hard to tell. This could swing, right? This district could swing. Yeah, as I said, there's only about uh, a a couple dozen of these races around the entire country, which means voters in about 85 percent of districts probably don't get to decide, really. Uh, You know, there's unlikely to be a change, for example, here in the seventh in Seattle, where Pramila Jayapal is our incumbent. You know, that's not likely to flip to the Republicans this year. In fact, that's really not going to happen. Whereas in the eighth, Democrat Kim Schreier uh, flipped the seat back in 2018, and Republicans are really hoping um, that they have a chance to do that. So the real question in the primary, of course, is who actually gets through? Is it going to be former Army Ranger Jesse Jensen, who ran last time and lost, a very conservative guy? Is it going to be Matt Larkin? Um, I was driving out there noticing some campaign signs of his that say, make crime illegal again, also a very conservative guy, Mm -hmm. Uh, or King County Council uh, member Reagan Dunn, who's uh, trying to present himself as the more moderate Republican candidate in some ways. And I think most pundits, including probably Joni Balter, think (laughs) that Reagan Dunn um, is going to be the hardest for Schreier to beat in the general election. Um, You know, I think he's the one who's going to come through. Yeah. Yeah. Why we didn't even talk about this. This is not planned. It's, you got it right. Yeah. I think that Reagan Dunn will probably come through. Um, and as you know, David, um, a lot of this has to do with this uh, wave, this red wave that we've been hearing about for many, many months and maybe changing. We don't know that because the the dynamics of this of all these races keep changing, uh, especially since um a few 
pretty key Supreme Court rulings, U.S. Supreme Court rulings. And as you you would agree with me, I think that um, the generic congressional polling data shows while it was very much favoring Republicans and still probably will, uh, it's been narrowing uh, since those Supreme Court rulings on guns and abortion. And so, you know, we talk about height of a wave. How high is that wave? And I will point out, and I, I think I have pointed this out before, that there was a big uh, Republican wave in 2010, and it did not really hit Washington State. It stopped at the Cascade Crest. That year, you know, there was this pretty expensive contest between Democratic Senator Patty Murray and Republican Dino Rossi. And, you know, you would have thought red wave, uh, the senator would be gone. But she beat uh, Dino Rossi by 4.75 points. So anyway, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's an importance to, to the height of this wave. And, and there's also a difference, and I wanted to point this out, between how people feel about President Biden and who they want to be their exact representative, either in Congress or the Senate. Biden? Yeah, and yeah, go ahead. You, so just you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the limit of this wave. There's an interesting poll out um, this week, actually, showing Patty Murray's numbers are up. Um, I'm not sure how much trouble Patty Murray was really in against Republican challenger Tiffany Smiley. But apparently, you know, she's been running tons of ads. Her poll numbers last month were down to only single digits. Um, and it looks like, like you're saying, that the Supreme Court ruling on abortion is really helping her. And I think it's probably also helping Schreier, especially since if it is Reagan Dunn, this is a guy who, even though his mom was supposedly pro-choice and he says he's pro-choice, he actually his doesn't mom support was also a national right to abortion. She's just letting yeah. people know her, his Jennifer yeah. Dunn, former, uh, the late Jennifer Dunn, yes, was a Congress member. Yeah. David, I had a quick question for you. Has there been any head-to-head polling uh, Schreier versus Dunn? Because it does seem like that's obviously the closest one. And I, my guess is that, that the amount of money spent on that one is going to rival the Dino Rossi uh, Schreier race. I haven't seen polling that I consider super reliable. I've seen internal polling. The last one I saw, actually, the DCCC forwarded to me that showed that Jesse Jensen was ahead of Reagan Dunn in the race. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. Um, but I don't know if there's any new kind of internal polling, and I haven't seen any recent public polling, but Joni, maybe you know. Well, I would say that the um, the polling will really heat up once the primary is over, because you got to have a candidate to run against a candidate. And sure, everybody's doing internal polling, but, you know, you got you to gotta run a Republican against Schreier and then see what, what the field tells you. What's the chance one of our Republican Congress members loses in the primary not big not big jamie herrera butler dan newhouse kathy mcmorris they're they're both they're they're going to come through the primary um and maybe either of them with the republican challenger uh top two primary stuff Mm -hmm. but they'll they'll both make it through the primary I, I mean, there are. I don't think that's outrageous. That's true. That. Top two primary means it can be two Republicans getting through. Yes, David. Well, you know, the 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 Democrat, I'm trying to remember her name now, down in the third congressional district. There's just a OPB story this week uh, that she's hopeful that it's that it's Trump backed Joe Kent that gets through and her, in which case Democrats might have a chance in that district. But in terms of money at this point and um cook political reports 
reports on you know which districts are competitive they're not they're not listing the third which means they they must think that Jamie Herrera Butler is going to get through and and be able to beat Joe Kent but if you haven't seen any videos of of Trump backed Joe Kent uh talking on the stump uh you know he's he's a pretty formidable candidate so uh, whoever gets through I think it's certainly possible that that Joe Kent actually ends up winning that thing um which would be, uh, in, in any case, I think it'll be an interesting race once we get through the primary. What about the idea of election fraud, election security? Has that fight also come to Washington state? I, I think it absolutely has in, in the uh, secretary of state race that we have. We um, had a very strong secretary of state in uh, Republican Kim Wyman, who left to work for the Biden administration. Uh, and so now we actually have a statewide race on the ballot because uh, Steve Hobbs, who was appointed to it, he's a moderate Democrat, has to uh, run for the seat. And so that is um, that's that's a fascinating race. And I think it's much about election security. And, you know, it wouldn't be this way if we didn't have uh, the Republican Party really trying to challenge democracy by sowing doubt in election results and the process itself. Don't forget, in 2016, we know that the Russians were trying to distort our elections. We know that. So we definitely need a sophisticated and very smart secretary of state. It seems that the, I mean, I, I agree with you, Jody, but I would, I would also add that it doesn't seem to me like, at least from what I've been reading, and maybe I, maybe I don't, haven't read this as carefully as you have, that while it is an important issue in Washington state, I don't think it's an issue in Washington state that resonates in the same way it does other places. I think primarily because there was a lot of bipartisan support, although not arch conservative support for Kim Wyman. You've got Hobbs, who's her handpicked, you know, kind of clone. And, and I would can't see how, unless he runs a poorly funded or, or a marginal campaign, it seems like you're going to get him with a hundred percent of the liberal support and a bit of the moderate Republican support as well, because you do have the election fraud claimers outside of Hobbs who are also running. It seems like it's overall probably his race to lose. I, I think that's probably right. Um, you know, Steve Hobbs is known as a very moderate person, right. uh, as, a, as a former lawmaker. Uh, and so people don't see him as you know, terribly partisan, like he pick one side over the other. And that's to his credit. He's also focused on cybersecurity uh, a lot in just the limited time that he's been um, in the job. And that's going to be, as, as we're saying here, very important. Um, there is one uh, important fact that I think that we should consider is that in, in many uh, other, other times that we've elected a secretary of state, we have elected a previous county auditor. As a matter of fact, we kept electing Thurston County auditors for some unknown reason. So I do think you have to consider, even though she's an independent, running as an independent, Julie Anderson, Pierce County Auditor. And these auditors, they kind of stick together and they all know election law really well. And so I think maybe some people will be inclined to vote for her as well as Steve Hobbs. Even even maybe some Democrats, because it seems like Washingtonians want to somehow reassure uh, conspiracy theorists that really there isn't anything going on. It seems like that's part of the reason everybody was splitting their vote and actually re kept reelecting a, Rep a Republican, Kim Wyman, um, you know, and Sam Reed before that. And I was I was actually uh, just wanted to mention that I was speaking with Steve Hobbs 
not for this. I'm, I'm, I'm not covering that race, but for a different story. Um, and in addition to bringing up, you know, election security, he also mentioned the fact that his office now has this team of people that's dedicated to trying to track down and um, speak to and kind of uh, stifle or whatever um, conspiracy theories surrounding elections. Um, and, and mentioned one example of this where apparently we have this system called ERIC that allows states to basically clean up their voter rolls. So if somebody moves to another state like Idaho or wherever, we can share that information and, and know that that person is no longer a voter in Washington state. Um, now, apparently the, the state of Louisiana this year decided to stop participating in ERIC because of an, another conspiracy theory about election fraud. So the irony here, you know, is that Louisiana has stopped using the system that's actually designed to prevent election fraud based on another conspiracy theory <laughs> about how, you know, that data is supposedly being used. Mm. Um, you know, so whoever's secretary of state, as you say, like has to worry about foreign actors, but they also have to worry about this kind of stuff, which yet another example, too, of, you know, where these conspiracy theories can really lead us astray and actually make our election systems less secure. Well, I just want to add here that we are not immune to people challenging our election system as good as it has been and as people sort of feel comfortable with it. So a sort of Trump copycat came in the form of Lauren Culp, who kept saying, you know, that he didn't lose or he didn't accept the election results and all this. And, you know, the history of elections in our state is pretty is pretty solid. People seem to trust it. And I remember Kim Wyman once um, telling me that they'd done some, you know, that they go back and check themselves. In 2018, they went back and checked themselves to see, you know, did they have the right number of voters and the right number of votes? And they came out with this study, and you've seen these before, I'm sure, that, um, that you know, the number of um, sort of dead voters still on the, on the rolls or people voting twice was 0.004 of the total. 0.004% of the total. So in other words, not something to kind of stay awake all, all night and worry about, but you, that doesn't stop people from purposely or mistakenly circulating conspiracy theories and, and threats of fraud. And it's really, really under, undermines the democracy. It's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. And Culp is running this year in the fourth, and he's, he's still talking about conspiracy theories, including uh, the misinformation that there are 7,000 dead people in Washington state who voted in the last election. That's not true, but um, Colt still apparently believes that. And, you know, I imagine if he loses to Dan Newhouse, um, as he's probably going to do, um, you know, he's, he's going to, he's going to claim, or he may well claim that, that there was some kind of funny business that was behind all of that. It's hard to say, but um, that's definitely his track record. They all went to Trump school. That's what I have to say. All right. Well, as some states restrict mail-in voting and drop box use, we do both of those here in Washington state. In case you're new to these environs, you've got your primary ballot. Should have it by now or on the way, depending on what county you're in. And you can mail that sucker in anytime you want. We're going to continue talking about elections, but we have not yet discussed how voting itself might be about to change in Seattle. Instead of just voting for one candidate, your one favorite candidate, you might be able to vote for as many candidates as you want to. We're going to take a very quick break and then tell you about that in a moment as Week in Review continues on the radio and on 
Facebook and YouTube. You just search KUOW Public Radio. We've got Joni Balter and Mike Lewis and David Hyde here, and we will be back in a quick moment. Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We were just talking about the primary ballots that were mailed to you this week. Meanwhile, your Seattle November ballot just changed this week as well. You may no longer be limited to voting for just one candidate. KUOW politics reporter David Hyde, I'll start with you again. What happened? Yeah, yesterday, uh, Thursday, the Seattle City Council voted to put ranked choice voting on the ballot. Uh, so if that one ends up passing this fall, voters are going to be asked to rank up to five candidates in city races in any order you want. And uh, once the votes are in, basically, there's a series of ballot counts. I was actually thinking it's a bit like um, the TV show Survivor, where then the lowest <laughs> ranked candidate is eliminated after each round. Kicked off the island. Voted off the island. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the end, and you the both live on islands. That could yeah. be tough. Uh, That's yeah. rough. <laughs> That's it. So at the end, the um, last two candidates standing go on to the general election, um, which, Bill, I'm hoping you're going to call final tribal council. (laughs) Okay, I will. All right. More to the story, though, is that um, there's there's some sort of backstory and intrigue to it. Council member Andrew Lewis is the person who introduced this measure to appear alongside another voting reform idea called approval voting, um, which had been out gathering signatures and managed to get on the ballot that way. Um, And so they're accusing, their supporters are accusing Lewis and others of sort of swooping in at the last minute and trying to politicize the process by pitting these two reform ideas together. Um, So they will be pitted against one another on on your ballot. And in any case, voters are going to have a choice. If approval voting wins, voters would get to pick as many candidates as they want. And the two candidates with the most approved votes goes on to the general election. And of course, there's a third option, which is voters can just reject both of these things and stick with the current system where the person with the most candidate win or the most votes, I should say, wins. Mm-hmm. Oh, one more thing I want to say about yesterday that was just kind of interesting is that um, ranked choice voting is the one that's favored by a lot of progressive groups in Seattle. But interestingly, during this meeting, um, city council member Shama Sawant said she's against that, um, arguing that actually it allows the establishment to kind of more easily manipulate the system I think saying that they could run sort of more middle middle of the road candidates, which would ultimately hurt socialist alternative candidates like her. Um, and Sawant was saying she prefers the top two systems. So it'll be interesting to see what the, you know, what the uh, race shapes up like, whether or not progressives are going to be lining up in favor of ranked choice voting or, or not. Clearly not all of them. Can I rail here for a minute? <laughs> Can you be real a second for just a millisecond? Tell the people how you feel a second? Yes. That kind of thing. So to me, this is your classic solution in search of a problem. Uh, you know, Seattle loves to think of itself as adopting good government reforms, and they often vote for them, reforms that is, without thinking about all the ramifications of the proposal. Let me give you a good example. District elections. This was an idea promoted by a couple of North End 
female voters. Um, they wanted to produce a more moderate council. And yet that didn't work. They produced a much more progressive council. Um, and there's, there's some folks there that are, that are a little different than that, but generally that was the impact of it. So now we sort of have this, it's not quite secret, but a summer rush job for sure uh, to get ahead of a ballot initiative that may produce more moderates. And um, I, I just wish, and I have said this before, I'm, I'm sorry about that, but you know, somebody tell me what's wrong with the elections we now have and um, what are we trying to fix here? So in the case of one of these, which one? Approval voting, we would be following uh, Fargo, North Dakota and St. Louis, Missouri because they run the best governments um, or not. So I don't get it. Seattle used to be the place that everybody else wanted to emulate that, you know, how do they do it in Seattle? That's a city that works. I don't know why we'd be following these other places like that. Well, Mike, I do want to hear from you. Um, it just off the top of my head, it seems to me the complaint is that especially in a primary, you can have s- someone who gets a small percentage of the votes wins, right? You you can have you can have a, the turnout is small, and you know most people didn't didn't get the candidate they wanted, so it's it's just more choice, right? Isn't yeah? That, that... I mean the the comparison I would make. <clears throat> well, first, let me ask the group a question. I assume all of you have gone out and to a, to a bar restaurant and had a beer at one point in your life, right? Maybe you do it regularly. True. Fair enough, True. everyone? Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. Well, so what you've seen out there uh, by the good people over at Georgetown Brewing is Manny's, uh, Manny's Ale. Manny's Ale is on tap probably two-thirds of the places in Seattle, many places around the state. Now, what there's two things about Manny's Ale that's important. One, no one I know calls it their favorite beer. But, <laughs> but, but everyone I know calls it their third favorite. So uh, let's go into uh, now let's go into ranked voting. I have issues did, with you on that one point because Manny's is my first. But go ahead, sir. Well but that would I would expect you to be the outlier Jim. So yeah. so the <laughs> there's the, always one. The, yes, the issue is that what did this do for Manny's? Well it put Manny's in virtually every bar in town. So what I'm trying to say is if we go to ranked voting, Manny's Ale is going to actually end up as a District 2 representative. <laughs> that was Very great. good. That everybody's, was great. Everybody's somewhat satisfied. Nobody's terribly Bingo. satisfied. And, and I love Georgetown beer, but, it, but it's kind of true. It's like the UN of beers. Everyone can agree on that because it's no one's, you know, no one's against it necessarily. But th- and this is what this is what advocates for both of these uh, initiatives talk about is voter satisfaction. They want to increase overall voter satisfaction right and so manny's would increase overall beer voter satisfaction over the beer that you really want there you <laughs> so go. voters will be bitter <laughs> that's funny there wow. will be bitters yes go on so but what okay so voters have been able with this system to get their message across let's let's look back to 2019 for a second here In 2019, the voters in Seattle wanted to tell Amazon to stay the heck out of elections or not, or at least not try to dominate them. And so they voted for the candidates that were the opposite of what Amazon wanted. Last year, last November, they wanted a more sensible, more moderate, whatever you want to call it, mayor, council, city attorney. They voted that way. They got those. So 
do you need to fall in love with these folks or help me? And, and, and please use <laughs> beer as your answer. I don't, I don't have a beer answer, but I would say my counter to you is that, do you think voters in the United States are satisfied compared to voters in other places overall? And I would say our example earlier from the 8th Congressional District being the only one in, in our entire state that has any say over what's about to happen this year when it comes to future control of Congress, it's dissatisfying for those of us in the other nine out of 10 districts that don't, don't get a say on that. If you're if you're in other systems of government outside the United States, your vote doesn't your vote does count towards that overall. Well, let me push back on you. Right. And if you live in Texas right now, for example, and you're a Democrat in the 2024 uh, presidential race, chances are, you know, there's lots of Democrats that live in Texas, but none of their votes will really count towards the, the presidential race. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction in our system. And I think these folks are well-meaning and wanting to kind of tinker and try to fix those things. But I think ultimately that bigger sense of uh, dissatisfaction can't be solved, at least through these types of measures. They might, it might solve some form of voter dissatisfaction and create some more inclusiveness. And I would also say, look, we already have the top two primary. We already have, um, uh, you know, um, whatever campaign financing, (laughs) sorry, I forget the name of it, Uh, voucher dollars, what are they called? Um, democracy vouchers democracy vouchers sorry we already have both of those things um so we've already made kind of incremental improvements that might you know create more voter satisfaction and i think the deal is look we're we're an experimental city this is this is jet city we got the space we we like to try stuff so just grab any idea just because somebody thought of it and put it on the ballot i do think that's what seattle voters are like and one of these things might pass for that reason yeah well, can I just ask one thing here? And that is, how would, uh, especially with the top two primary, the 8th district, which you're um, focused on, how would the result be any different than it's going to be? You're talking about with, um, if they went if to... If you had any of these kinds of um, voting system, any of the new ones, which are not proposed for con- for Congress, they're just proposed for the city, but just extrapolate it and say... It's going to be Kim Schreier and either Jensen or Reagan Dunn. It's not going to be any I would, I would say that the down ballot folks would automatically start getting more attention, you know, in a system like that, whether it's ranked choice vote, voting, um, you know, or, or approval voting, um, you know, the, because in debates, for example, how do you know who's kind of shut out? I mean, and I, I you know, I'm also just kind of wondering how campaigning starts to look in either of those systems, like, do you, you, like, it came up in the meeting yesterday that uh, I think it was Andrew Lewis saying, now, when I go knock on doors, I can say, okay, sure, I'm not your first place choice candidate. And maybe I'm not even your second <laughs> I'm place candidate. I am but could, I be, could I be your third or fourth <laughs> choice candidate? Um, so there will be a new kind of electioneering that will occur if either one of these things passes. Okay, well, both of those options will be if you're in Seattle voting, They'll be on your November ballot, approval voting, ranked choice voting. Some voters will be bitter. Some voters will be hoppy. Okay, let's talk. (laughs) Before we leave politics. Bill, that was good. (laughs) um, Before we leave politics, will Washington State or its cities ever have an income tax? Should they? Should a capital gains tax count as an income tax? We've been having this debate for years here. And this week, our state Supreme Court agreed to take the capital gains case. Mike Lewis, why does that matter? 
this is going to be, I think, uh, again, I'm not trying to put anyone to sleep or eliminate dinner time conversation with anyone who might have me over for dinner. But I think the capital gains issue is super interesting and I love talking about it. Awesome. Sorry. And it, and so I think that the interesting thing here, a couple of really interesting things here. One, it's going to be a decision about definitions of terms, right? This is what the decision is essentially going to be. Is a capital gains, uh, as it relates to Washington state, is your sale of stock, for example, because it is limited. This capital gains tax is not all capital gains. It's not property sales and things like that. It's really- It's not even retirement It's, it's not selling no, stock. No, no, no. It's really accounts. targeted at specifically at the way tech companies tend to compensate staff. This is this actually an excise tax, a sales tax? And you can make the argument, the legal argument, that it is, because it's a transactional tax that only happens upon sale. Or is it an income tax? Now, the IRS ca- classifies uh, capital gains as an income, as a portion of your income, and it's taxed as income tax, actually at a fairly high rate. Washington State, because of its historic restrictions on income taxes in the state, because income was classified in 1933 as real property real property can only be taxed at a specific rate. That's why Washington State's income taxes are not expressly forbidden, but they are very, very strictly limited. And so Washington State has historically struggled to try to figure out a way, how do we add some form of tax that is more income-based than a sales tax, which is considered excise tax, which is considered in many cases a bit regressive, right? Or if not exceedingly regressive. And so the Supreme Court is going to be faced with this. Is a capital gains tax as written in Washington State really a sales tax or is it an income tax? And that's really where the issue is going to pivot. And it's interesting because they bypassed the lower appellate court, the wash, they took it on direct appeal, which means they knew it was going to end up there anyway. So now we're going to get a chance to wait and see what actually is going to happen here. Well put. But do we say that uh, this is a profit of above two hundred fifty thousand dollars, that amount, yes, a profit above. Yeah, that so it's, it's sizable. It's not really going to be everyone's. I don't know about you know what your what the listeners here's habits are regarding stock purchases and sales, but it's that's a fairly significant amount. And remember, it would have to happen in one calendar year. And then now, the other, as a side note, the other thing that's happening here is every tax attorney in Washington State is figuring out what are the loopholes. Can you establish residency in another state? If the stock sale happens out of state, is Washington, are you taxed in Washington state? All kinds of things are actually spinning out of this right now that have sent accounts and CPAs scurrying uh, to the law books to figure out, well, what can they do to shroud their clients away from this tax? You made me even more interested than I was. Yes, sorry. Go on, the rest of the team. Oh, yeah, question sorry. for Mike. Uh, I, in your article, you bring this up, but, but what do you think the chances are that the court upholds it and then, okay, rethink this whole thing. Now we're going to go to the voters, uh, opponents of the capital gains tax. And if that happens, what happens? Well, that's a good question because all of the bet there was something like, I tried to count and I lost count, but it was around three dozen initiatives, many of those, many of which were just copies of each other. Uh, put in place to obviate any Supreme Court decision. None of them qualified for the ballot. Some gathered signatures, some did not. Some were clearly placeholders. So we don't have to deal with that at this particular point. Now, it could come up again technically in December as a ballot measure that then goes to the legislature in, in early 2023. That's a possibility. So yes, we could see it there. I think what everyone is going to do is sort of keep their powder dry until the Supreme Court makes a decision and then react accordingly after that. But I think if you, if it is going to be an expensive 
statewide ballot measure. If it does, if the Supreme Court does uphold it, then it's going to be an expensive one to get it uh, to get that overturned. My follow up question. Sorry, Joni, go ahead. Um, I'm really happy this is going to the Supreme Court, you know, because, uh, you know, with the court taking up this case, we really have a chance this time to test what is a sort of long held political narrative that anything that looks like an income tax is unconstitutional. Uh, This gives us a chance to to test that long held belief. You know, we don't really know. We don't know if a narrow ruling some, what is it, 90 years ago, really does apply to the capital gains tax. So I'm, I'm happy to, to hear what the, what the justices think, you know, and it, it gets very complicated when you go to the ballot because our voters, even though if you, you ask a lot of people in this state, they think that, you know, the taxation system here is terrible, but whenever you ask them if they'd like an income tax, they, they sort of vote no, for one thing, and they, because two reasons, they think it's going to come to them, that, that tax will somehow, even though it's sold as this is for very rich people, that it'll somehow impact them, middle income folks. And they also think it's going to pile on top of uh, the existing taxes, particularly the sales tax, which is quite high in the state. And so it is a very liberal Supreme Court, but they, I, I'm, I, I can't wait to hear what they have to say, because it's a chance to test what um, some constitutional scholars have been saying is that A, we should test this, and B, that this form of taxation uh, is probably legal instead of un- illegal. Yeah, it's exactly, it's exactly going to be addressing that question. Precisely that that's and, but the thing is also it's going to also change the definition of what income tax is in Washington state, potentially. And that's going to open the door for other forms, potentially other forms of taxes, because even this one is not going to be a massive money raiser for the state. This is a this is a and this does is the a poking... state need a massive um, money raiser? I mean, this state is no, so I, flush I, at the moment. It's not even funny. Well, but but more to the point is actually whether or not it needs the money, because states don't always tax only because they need the money. I would say that that the what's interesting here is that it's going to start with this very narrowly drawn capital gains tax. But it where does it go if they say this is actually an excise tax and not an income tax? Well, then it does open the door for a more significant rewriting. And it also undermines that 1933 ruling, which some legal scholars say was very flawed to begin with, to call income property. And that was because that linked the two forever in law. And I think that that is going to be the interesting place that they're going to have to, the Supreme Court is going to have to untangle. Uh, Mike, 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 earlier question for Mike actually uh, sparked in part by what Joni just said as well, which is bringing up the fact that voters have always, you know, gone against these things. I can't remember when it was. A few years ago, they voted against this high earners income tax ballot initiative that Bill Gates Sr. was supporting and others. They ended um, up in Mike, a dunk tank in the ad. Yeah. Sooner, do you remember tank, that yeah. ad? Yeah. yeah. Um, it didn't pass. But, um, but Mike cites Sandy Kaushik uh, in his article claiming that voters may now be ready to tax the rich, which is one of the reasons why it hasn't gone to the ballot yet. Um, and he actually, I'm wondering, Mike, what you thought of that argument where he's um, claiming that Trump and his populist style has actually unleashed this kind of version of the Republican Party and independent white working class voters who are no longer uh, kind of uh, supportive of Mr. Howell. 
uh, you know, from Gilligan's Island <laughs> Another and, and Island. his interests. Yeah. Um, and that and that the party of the rich and, and monocle sales are down. Monocle sales are down. Mm-hmm. That, that that Trump has unleashed this white working class, you know, that would um, would would unnerve Mr. Howell. Um, you know, they're still really kind of anti-government, but they're also anti-rich and might be more open to um, the possibility of a of of a state income tax. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. I have no idea if he's right about that, but uh, I think he says he claims that that comes from some uh, focus group data. Yeah, I, I think I'd have to see it to believe it. I, I like Sandy's story quite a lot. Uh, and I love I love the, the point at which he was trying to get that this has maybe created some populism uh, among like the, the sort of eat the rich idea. But I would say that I'll s- believe it when I see it, actually. I mean, this is assuming that people actually vote in their own self-interest. And frequently, we've seen many examples of people not voting in their self-interest. And so if that does happen, I, you know, I'm all there to to take it and believe it. But right now, I think I'm a little skeptical of that particular point. Oh, I will God. say, I will say, just going back to Joe Kent running there in the third congressional district against Jamie Herrera Butler, he sounds like Bernie Sanders. You know, the the sort of anti corporate rhetoric coming out of his mouth. Man, he sounds a lot like Bernie Sanders, and and is tapping into some of those same voters. Actually, is tapping into some of those same voters. So. Yeah, but he has, still has to win an election. So let's see. Let's see where that let's goes. See. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I'll but just add just, to we need sorry, to jo- we, we, we are, populism. We've got oh, other things to cover. Do you mind, Joni? Okay. You have one sentence. Do you have something to leave us with? Or? I'll, yeah, I'll just say really quickly that income inequality is becoming a more mainstream issue and people may vote differently. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. right. All right. Well, Joni just said a moment ago, we have a liberal Supreme Court in Washington. So if the court allows an income tax... I'm sure we'll hear Washington liberals say, thank goodness for politically active Supreme Court justices <laughs> who impose their politics on the, on the rest of us. OK, let's pause uh, and then pick up again. We've got GeekWire's Mike Lewis, KUOW's David Hyde, contributing columnist Joni Balter. And when we come back from a quick break, we'll talk about uh, recruiting police officers and closing coffee shops. Now we're in the home stretch of KUOW's Week in Review. This week, Seattle's mayor said Seattle Police Department staffing is down at a crisis level, and he asked the city council to attract more police officers by offering them recruitment bonuses, signing bonuses, retention bonuses. Who can tell me what the city council thinks about that idea? I think they're kind of leery of it, but... um... Bruce Harrell doesn't really make big grand proposals without counting the votes. So he must have the votes to uh, achieve the extra million that he is trying to add to um, the existing money set aside for um, helping, attracting um, new recruits from other departments and brand new police officers. Uh, the incredible shrinking police department, is, as some call it, is... Uh, down 400 officers, just over that since 2019. And so when you have these events coming, like, you know, Seafair and uh, all these other sort of public events, you got to have enough police officers, you know, even though one of the reasons that we have uh, this many officers leaving has to do, as everybody knows, with the defund movement a few years ago, uh, the city has done exit interviews with some of the people, many of the folks who, who, are leaving or who have already left 
And they say they don't want to work somewhere where they're not appreciated. So we have some um, PR work to do there as well. Mike or David, do you agree that to the loss of police officers, how much do you tie that to the Seattle defund the cops movement? Uh, I think that if you look at the numbers, it was happening before that. So I think that that was in some degrees, a, a ex- very, very expensive city, even if you're a police officer. I don't remember what the average was. Seattle Times did a story on it. Something like 104, with overtime, $104,000 a year, something like that for a cop who's been on the job for a couple of years. I, I don't know. I think, I think that's what it is. So, so don't, uh, don't call me on that figure exactly. But that, was, that decline was happening prior to that. And I, and I not, at this, the, not at this level. No, 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 no. I understand. I understand that. But no. I, what I'm saying is the decline was happening, and it was happening in every major American city. Uh, and there's not a city in the com- big city in the country, whether there was a defund movement or not, that is not seeing a decline because there's so many other jobs that were hiring over that period of time. I think it's what's going to be interesting from a city council perspective is, is whether or not the deal, the bonuses, whatnot that they're talking about right now for the, with the extra money for recruitment, whether it's going to be able to match from a cost of living standpoint, what other departments are offering. Because remember, you know, any employee is going to make a decision on not just what their salary is, but salary based on cost of living. And that's how you net out something that allows you to, you know, save your kids education, buy a house, things like that. What other cities are offering that are less expensive than Seattle in the Puget Sound region is probably going to determine the success of that program. You know, uh, I agree. It seems like it, you know, might have played some role. Some cops maybe said it did, um, but it's not just Seattle. Police departments all over the country are facing this um, and right. not just cops. Other government jobs, even here in Seattle, are in short. Right. It's, it's hard to it's hard to hire for a lot of things. Um, it's it's a seller's market if you're if you're a worker right now, no matter where you are. I think the last time I checked, King County's um, overall unemployment rate was something like one point nine percent, which is just incredibly low. Um, you know, and I also think I mean we're not really talking about it, but behind the scenes, of course, the city's negotiating with the police union. Uh, city wants reform. The union maybe doesn't, and it has all the power right now, I think, because of this tight labor market. You know, it, it, or it, it gives them a lot more power than it would otherwise. Um, so anyway. I'm glad you raised that because the, the discussion over retention bonuses, which is different than recruiting um, bonuses, is that those are part of that contract. And so you won't hear anybody telling you what those numbers are. Uh, one thing I wanted to add to this discussion is, as we all know, and it's not, it's not a great uh, fact of life, but it is still a fact of life, is that many police officers um, live outside the city and they have for a long, long time. And so Most actually, right. Yeah. And one of the ways that they you know, balance uh, the very high cost of living in the city although you don't want to go to the East Side or Bellevue, which is even higher. But one of the ways that you balance that is by living a little bit further out. And they like that because they don't want to be, they don't want their neighbors calling them and saying, hey, I got a little problem over here. Can you come over? They want, they want the anonymity and to be separate. I'm Speaking, not saying it's right. a good thing. It's been a problem, actually. But, but, but to your point, if they can make nearly the same and not have a 45-minute commuter to Seattle, they're they're likely to and they can get hired by another department. I mean, it, all of this is going to play out based on a cost of living standpoint, and I think to some degree also how supportive they feel like the city council is. And that's, well, that's exactly to, right. That's exactly and that, right. And that's going to be another another matter entirely. Important. Right. Very important. Speaking of, of policing, um, which gets us to crime, Starbucks said this week it's closing five Seattle stores because they're too dangerous for employees and customers. Too much crime, says the company. 
No, too many union organizers say some labor labor advocates. What what else should we know about this uh, this conversation? Well, I think this is the flip side of being the third place as Starbucks always wanted to be for people. You know, the upside is that Starbucks provided a place to get out of the house, go somewhere, have a cup of coffee, meet somebody. But the downside is, and and there is a union component here for sure in some of what's going on. But we also have to acknowledge, I believe, that crime and the perception of crime is changing our city. Uh, employees don't feel safe in some of these stores. Uh, even some of the coffee drinkers don't feel safe. So they run in, get their coffee and run out. That could also be COVID related. I'm not positive. But uh, we do have to think about um, crime levels in these cities. Um, I was talking to an editor of mine at Bloomberg, and we were talking about Portland, of all things, which a recent poll showed, um, I believe, eight. Oh, hang on, let me get it right. Eight percent of voters say Portland is headed in the right direction. Eight percent. So these cities are changing, and I guess Starbucks stores, the way people use them, is changing, and so that explains some of it. Yeah, I, I would also I would add to that. I think that that's those are excellent points. I, I would add to that also that I don't. Of the stores that are closing, I don't know that any of those were the stores that were organizing. I don't think that that's the case. So I, I would say one, that yes, that I, I thought, if I were, I thought one of, I thought one of them was in that category. Was one of them? I check my notes while you're talking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Please do. The, okay. the so I think that the crime issue actually is a fairly significant one. I mean, not just Starbucks, but small businesses are dealing with. And I would and I would just link us back to the story about police recruitment. I mean, you know, if you're in a small business and you're having a problem, the police response time isn't going to be great. And Starbucks can actually make these larger decisions about which are the stores that are maybe not as profitable, which are the stores that we are sort of a bit of a wobbler. We're already having problems with certain places. And Starbucks is at least able to relocate all of those people, I think, to new to new locations. I, I do think that there is a component. Is there possibly a component also with the union organizing? Well, sure, absolutely. But my guess is that it is actually driven by crime and police response well, what times, they which said is the, pretty difficult. What they said at the time was that they based the closures on the number or percentage or something like that of complaints about public yeah. safety. Yeah, exactly. I, I uh, not to change the subject, but I just saw, I did see one tweet on this that I really liked that wondered um, whether or not Starbucks would be reopening these Seattle stores in Oklahoma City. Oh, <laughs> like Howard Schultz. Ouch. 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 Um, I mean, I was thinking about that, like, you know, if if Starbucks wanted to send a message here about the problem with crime in its stores, it seems like the, the timing is kind of bad just because it does coincide with their unionization efforts. Um, but whether or not most people in the city are kind of linking the two, as opposed to folks that are really focused on those unionization efforts, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, does Starbucks, you know, want Seattle to to solve its crime problem, or does it want to help solve those crime the, the crime problem? Obviously, like losing, you know, Starbucks stores doesn't help with that. And I I wonder myself about what kinds of conversations Starbucks is having with the city behind the scenes about crime and what the city might do. Because it seems like the Herald administration ran on crime, um, is certainly trying to address crime and is actually being criticized in many ways for the ways in which it's addressing crime. So I kind of wonder just politically, like as a, as a, as a corporation that, that emphasizes its ethics and corporate responsibility, like what conversations is the city having 
uh, with Starbucks and vice versa. You know, it seems like these stores closing suggests that that relationship isn't as good as it could be. Right. And, and Starbucks also closes dozens of stores a year. I mean, Starbucks is not above closing stores in any times. I mean, if it sees a store that's a wobbler, if it can throw in, remember QFC did something very similar, right? And Q, it turns out QFC was actually closing stores that had slated for closure, but it was claiming that it was a crime related issue. And in that case, it seems a little bit of a specious claim. I don't, I'm not saying that's true with Starbucks, but it could be that they had already identified stores you know, that were wobblers and decided to throw this in as a reason. I don't know about wobblers, but I, uh, I'm i seeing multiple sources saying two of the five that were, I thought it was one. I'm seeing some people saying two, two union oh, two. stores just okay. closing. Um, listen, it's, uh, we just got a couple minutes left in the show, two minutes and 20 seconds for somebody to give me something to smile about. What happened this week that's a, a hopeful or happy thing? The, the freaking streaking M's, the Mariners. Mariners. They've won 11 out of 11, and yeah. somebody correct me if I'm wrong, 19 out of 22, so they're pretty hot. Now, it's always tough to keep these winning streaks going, but they're, they're so much fun. Have you seen how they dance at the end of the games <laughs> yes. when they win? It's so, so, so much fun. They're tough to maintain during an All-Star break, which is next week. Yeah. Uh, but Mariner fans, they're getting what, what they need here. It's been a long drought here yes. for this team to be in the playoffs, and if if we decided today, which we obviously do not, they would be a wild card team, and and that's pretty exciting. That's smiley. Uh, we got a minute and a half left. Who's who, who else has a smile? David, nothing. I do. I was going to wait for you. I'm, I'm oh. being polite. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> All right. I, you know, I'll say uh, there was a woman I ran into uh, in Leavenworth in the middle of town, just kind of walking around. And when you're a radio person, you're always looking for sounds. Hmm. And this woman was playing. Uh, what's called an alp horn in the middle of town, uh, which is one of those long, you know, wooden instruments that it's sort of pre their ability to actually wrap them around like a French horn. And she was just through her aperture playing this. Um, is this is, is this her? Beautiful music, yeah. <laughs> sort of melancholy. Oh my god, on cue, it's a, there she is. And she says she likes to hike up into the mountains and play it, you know, in the lakes with this sort of echoing around. And so that that it put a smile on my face anyway. Yeah, that's a smiler. And I understand Oktoberfest is coming back to Leavenworth after being It's coming back. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In a different form apparently, but yeah. Okay. Well that and it's not Alpenhorn, it's Alphorn. Alp. Uh Alphorn. Thank you for that correction. Um all right, good. That's good news. Good news in Haugen Strasserheimer for the Bavaria of the West. Uh, we got to go. Uh, KUOW's David Hyde and GeekWire's contributing editor Mike Lewis, uh, Joni Balter, contributing columnist, political analyst. Hey, thanks, everybody, for being Week in Review. Great job. Thank thanks, you. Bill. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. And thank See you everybody. to the producer, Kevin Kniestet. Thank you to Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. Social media and live streaming work there. And the dancing destroyer, Bernard Wallet making it all sound good on the board. I'm Bill Radke. Just looking forward to doing this again one week from today. Thanks for joining us for Week in Review. Thank you. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.